Hello and welcome to Gamer to Gamer. I'm your host, James Intricasso. This is a podcast where I interview pros in the gaming industry about their careers and the games they love to play. Today's guest is Susan J. Morris. Susan has worked for Wizards of the Coast as an editor and author of various novels and is the designer of the Heroes of Hyzod, a Dungeons & Dragons game for kids. Susan is an amazing editor and storyteller. Her homebrew world for the campaign she DMs is the best I've ever heard described. More on that later. Please use the affiliate links on thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. You just go to thetomeshow.com, click on the links in the show notes for this episode or any other, and then shop as you normally would. All right, here's the interview with Susan. I am here with Susan J. Morris, who is a level 50 NPC, if I have ever met one. (laughs) Susan, thank you so much for coming on Gamer to Gamer today. Thanks for having me. Of course, yeah, anytime. So why don't you take us all the way back to the first time you laid hands on a tabletop RPG? What did you play, and what was your role? Were you the player? Were you the DM? How did you get involved? So uh, my story's a little convoluted. Um, I first I did start out actually with video games because my dad was a video gamer, uh, and so um, I the Beholder was one of my first. I was a terrible backseat gamer, <laughs> always telling him what he should do until he finally got me my own copy. Um, and then I realized this was actually like based on a pen and paper game. Uh, and eventually, I and like I'd always loved monsters was the other side of the story, and I always loved reading about them, and like I. I Look specifically for books with monsters on the cover at the library. Mm-hmm. Uh, and eventually, uh, I was at a bookstore and I ran across the Monstrous Manual, second edition D&D. Um, and I picked that up and started reading about all the histories of all the monsters and everything. And like um, that, was just, that just really captured my imagination. I really loved the sand giants, for instance, and the way they slowly turned to stone mm-hmm. uh, and their blue eyes slowly turned brown. And so the fact that you could come across like these stones in the desert and they'd actually be like a whole people moving very slowly. <laughs> like, but, uh, and after that, I started like trying to convince my parents that I should be allowed to go do role-playing games, essentially, like pen and paper. Uh, and they were not convinced. Um, they did not, they weren't sure that it was a great idea for, you know, a kid to go out seeking groups of random people to play with. They weren't (laughs) sure, uh, it was particularly safe or not. So, um, I started out actually by playing by email. Uh, and so I did play by email campaigns as a player. Um, and eventually, uh, after a couple of those, uh, I managed to convince my parents to let me put a sign up at the local gaming store. Because they had, back in the day, <laughs> they had like a cork board that you put like a little like your name and number and like the fact that you're looking for a game and what system. And the, I happened to be contacted by really the nicest pair of people uh, I could have ever met. Um, and they, t- they took turns DMing over the years, like campaigns and everything. It was a couple that had re- recently graduated college. Um, and the DM was actually a pastry chef. Um, which was amazing. Uh, And they were running, they were going to start a new campaign in this world, this homebrew world that they'd created like over years (laughs) of work and everything. So, and they even had like their own like additional supplement books and like different races. Like I played this little like fairy creature called a Reston that was nicknamed the shrub because I had like green hair and brown skin. (laughs) Uh, And I really did look like a shrub. It was yeah it was pretty great Mm -hmm. um and so i played in that game for a while and it was awesome it was such a diverse cast in terms of pretty much everything you could think of because it was just people who all from that cork board who Mm -hmm. all wanted to play uh i mean 
we, I was a kid and I got to bring one of my friends just so that I wasn't the only kid. Right. Right. Uh, but then they were in college and then there was someone who'd retired from the army and there was someone else who was a geology teacher somewhere. Um, like just a really interesting group. Wow. How old um, were you at this point? I guess I must've been about 12. Yes. Cause of when, uh, ultimate underworld and I, the beholder came out, <laughs> yes. like that's yes. how you do your timeline, right? <laughs> <laughs> of course. Of course. So not, so it wasn't like a, uh, an eight year old sitting at it. No, that, at that, when I was younger, I had to do play by email. My parents were not convinced that this was the best way to send me out into the world. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I can see why sure. I actually did a research paper on why I should be allowed to game. That's <laughs> it was amazing. pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that game lasted about a year, and then unfortunately they moved to uh, Virginia, uh-huh. which was too far. I, w- I was Maryland side, and I didn't have a car, so because um, I was too young to drive. Right. <laughs> so then I decided I wanted to start running my own games, and uh, I started. I impressed my Girl Scout group into my first D and D game, um, awesome. and I was trying to run a box set. It was really fun uh, because the Girl Scouts are like a bloodthirsty lot and Mm -hmm. uh very interested (laughs) in role play in general so it was it was a really fun thing and it was funny because all their parents didn't were worried like you know what is this is she getting them into demon worship or something and Mm -hmm. i was like you can come and play too and they like stayed for like one hour and like this is not our bag but it is not demon worship (laughs) we are out of here (laughs) i mean because like i think we spent the whole first hour like with them wanting to figure out various ways to interact with the townsfolk Right, right, <laughs> of course, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, I can dance? Oh, I can dance? <laughs> I can do anything. <laughs> this is how I learned that you need to sometimes bring the plot to the players. Right, right, <laughs> yeah. Well, so that's really cool. So you're there, you're hanging out, uh, teaching your Girl Scout group how to play D&D, which is just so punk rock. I love it. <laughs> uh, you know, that's that's amazing. Um, at what point then uh, you... Do you continue playing games uh, from this point on? Do you ever lose it at any point before you begin sort of a professional career? Um, I wouldn't say I necessarily lost it. I, the Girl Scout game did fall apart eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, I was not a very good DM when I started. Shocking, I know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I ended up um, playing in a number of White Wolf games at that point. Because uh. um, I finally connected with other gamers at my school. And mm-hmm. it was one of those things where you had to apparently like leave your gaming books out and wait for someone to see them <laughs> to figure out who they were. <laughs> and so finally I connected with a group of gamers there and we started playing. Uh, I started out by playing in a changeling game and then I ran a mage game. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did, so I did mostly, and I ran one more D&D game, uh, also ill-fated because I hadn't learned, like I just learned that you should probably say yes when you can, but I hadn't learned how to deal with saying yes to players who are a little too inventive for their own good. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that game spiraled out of control quickly, but it was fun. And mm-hmm. then in college, I played um, mostly White Wolf Vampire, and uh, I even did a LARP, Vampire LARP, and a Werewolf uh, Tabletop, uh, D&D, 3 and 3.5 uh, a lot. And th- that was fun. Some of them were, like, I didn't really have D&D campaigns so much as we did a lot of, like, three shots. And like sometimes you'd start at like level 16 and it's like there's something you're trying to accomplish in those three sessions. And I didn't run during that time until like my last year of college. And then I started getting the, it, the bug to run again. But I, I designed actually um, a couple like three shots during mm-hmm. that time. Because uh, again, that like that that feels like it. And even now when I design in my campaign, and I love campaign structure way better than like Three sh- like three shots or so, but I still do them in like three shot arcs. 
So there's three shot arcs that, and then there's greater arcs that hopefully will all come together. I feel like that gives kind of smaller senses of closure amidst the bigger senses of closure. Gotcha. Kind of like a, a comic book story arc, right? They have very much a long continuity, but you can sort of pick up a, a new series every three or four issues or so, which is great. Exactly. And that way it doesn't feel like it's just interminable, right? You want to mm-hmm. have that sense that you're accomplishing things that actually create change. And then uh, I got hired at Wizards right out of college, actually. Oh, um, the dream. That's the I know. dream. <laughs> it was. I moved across the country, intent on getting the job, and got it. I mean, it was like... Because <laughs> uh, I knew I had a better chance of being interviewed if I, were lo- if I was local. Sure. So I was like, all right, I'm straight out of college. This is my chance. <laughs> so was that, that was always your focus. You went to college with an eye towards, uh, you know, I would like to go work on Dungeons and Dragons? No, actually Dungeons and Dragons was very much, it's something I really enjoy doing, but I've always wanted to do something with writing and editing as a primary job, um, which is what I did there. I, the only thing I did as a designer was the D&D for kids for them. Other than that, it's all been just on my own. Right. Uh, and I think I actually kind of like having that division. Having that allows D&D to be this free expression creative space for me where I can go and I'm feeling stifled by having to be creative in another space, right? Oh, yeah. And so I feel like it's so good. It's actually rejuvenating to work on rather than I feel like if I did it for work, I might get to the point where I no longer wanted to do it for fun. Of course. Um, But doing something that is similar, like editing their novel line, was very nice because uh, it allowed me to play in the world and get a deeper understanding and feel for the game without being so close to it that I couldn't play for fun. So talk to me a little bit about the work that you did at Wizards of the Coast. Obviously, um, you know, for for people who listen to the Tome Show podcast, they know that you uh, have worked in the novel world for a little bit. But for people who are just picking this up for the first time because they're mystified by your name (laughs) uh, or they, they heard the Gamer to Gamer podcast is so great. Uh, what is it that you did while you were working at Wizards? I was there for just over six years, and I worked the majority of the time uh, on the novel line of the Forgotten Realms. And I was developmental editor, and also I eventually I became the person who kind of decided like what books I was going to publish for most of it. Um, I, there were other editors who took one. Another editor had um, R. A. Salvatore, and uh, there was another editor was helping out because there, we had like seriously too many books uh, i mean it was awesome it was great i re- i kind of i missed the days of having too many books right <laughs> yeah but i was supposedly yeah. like the i was supposed to create like help pick the line essentially help pick the stable and That's um cool. yeah it was really fun uh but like when i started out i actually worked for a couple years on i always worked on forgotten realms like on the additionally so like mm-hmm. but the first two years i was working on on the side for another editor who was the vision for Forgotten Realms. Uh, and then I also worked on the magic novels. And then after two years, I transitioned off the magic novels and into full-time Forgotten Realms. And we kind of shared the line. And then he moved, he had to do more managing, managing stuff. So I took over more of it. And then eventually we got a second editor to help. Uh, and she took over her own like quadrant of it. So um, mostly developmental editor, which is uh, helping authors with like their plot line and their character arcs and the themes. And like a big part of it was also making sure that they um, didn't break any continuity and that they weren't like all in the same place. So like I had right. this giant map on my wall of the Forgotten Realms and like little author names everywhere for where the <laughs> authors were playing so that I could at a glance be like, this is where they are. Um, and like, yes, there is someone like in 
X, Y, or Z place right now, like Cholt or whatever, <laughs> like do not do Cholt. It was after the switch to fourth edition actually um, was when I started doing more of the books before I was doing the books, but I was very much fault filling in like I was editing books, but the other editor was still like directing the line. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was directing it through the change to fourth. So you were there uh, when the spell plague obviously went down, uh, which was a big, big storyline in the realms. Um, and uh, you have been there working on all kinds of great novels with some great names and everything. Uh, and your own name sort of rose to greatness during that time. Uh, so you were there working on stuff, but then. Uh, you also uh, got to have a few of your own stories published. Oh, yeah. I did some work for the Mirrorstone line, which is the YA uh, young readers line. Mm-hmm. Um, and mine were middle grade books, actually. And I did <clears throat> A Practical Guide to Dragon Magic, A Practical Guide to Wizardry, A Practical Guide to Fairies, and then The Companion to that, which is a novel, um, which is The Fairy Locket. Uh, the practical guides were really fun. They're basically practical guides to fantastical things. So, like, instead of, like, the Audubon book for birds, it's, like, the Audubon book to dragons. <laughs> it was really fun. And what's funny is, like, the sheer amount of research you have to do to write one of those things. <laughs> like, there was a time when I swear I knew every single 3.5 book back to front. Wow. Um, I have to say that 3.5 is like my happy place in terms of what I'm most familiar with the most amount of books. Cause there was a time when I'd read all of them. Right. And like, sure. I knew what was going on. Um, and That's so a lot it's, of reading too. That is a lot. Of books. <laughs> <laughs> it is, but it's one of those things that when you're doing so much research, eventually you read it all, you know, and mm-hmm. like, it's much better to do it that way than if you read it all at once. I feel like I always forget everything when I do that. Right. Uh, yeah. Like, <laughs> it's like cramming for a test. You forget it all as soon as the test is over. Right. But if you read it when you need it or, mm-hmm. and like, you know, working on a lot of books, you end up needing it quite a bit. And especially working on the practical guides where it's like, you had to dig up like the, every random detail. And that's when you found all the little tiny things that like didn't connect and it drove you crazy because you didn't know which one should be brought forward and that kind of thing. <laughs> or how to try and like make them make sense. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> you don't want to just ignore it. That was really fun. So you were there for a time at Wizards of the Coast, and then eventually you left Wizards of the Coast, and uh, what's going on in life now? Well, I still freelance edit for them. Basically, um, I left to go to Amazon for uh, about a year, and I worked in their books department, which was actually really cool because it gave me kind of the other side of the process. Like, when you work in publishing on the editorial side, it was really hard to tell, like, what is effective as marketing? And, like, when do books actually sell? Is it a myth that certain periods are dead or is it not a myth? Like, mm-hmm. like you know, why do people always say that you should do X, Y, or Z with your marketing dollars and do they actually make any, like, make a difference? Like, wh- and so, it, and also just, like, what are people actually interested in? Like, what actually sells and that kind of thing. And so it was really interesting to see the other side and, like, see, oh, this is why they tell you to do these things. These things are actually not effective, but they make people feel good. These things, like, you know, things actually do sell in these patterns. And, like, you know, figuring out, like, the, the micro patterns for, like, the fantasy genre and everything. It was really cool. And now you're back uh, freelancing occasionally with uh, Wizards of the Coast, which is also great. Uh, happy to have you there working on the novels and everything again. I do want to hit up uh, the Heroes of Hyzod, D&D game for kids that was made, which uh, for me is a big uh, passion point. People have heard me talk about getting kids on board early with role-playing games so that 
before they have a chance to really see it like uh, as a nerdy thing. <laughs> uh, they they all love it and they're all already doing it. So it's a cool thing. And also that it's just, you know, it's a great what thing for kids. You know, their, their little imaginations are so enormous and everything that it's uh, good fun for them. Um, so could you talk to me a little bit about designing the Heroes of Paizad and uh, sort of what your goal was with that? I'd been wanting to do that for several years and kind of working on different iterations of it. And there were a couple goals I had. Uh, one of which was that I was thinking back to when I was that kid and I really wanted to play role-playing games and I really wasn't allowed to. <laughs> I totally would have been allowed to if it was just my cousins and my sister, right? Or like people I knew. At that age, it can be hard to find people and especially if you don't have a car and you can't leave, right? right. And so the idea was I wanted a game that you could like download on your computer, print out, use scissors, and in five minutes be playing. I wanted it to be something that kids could run for kids and that you could play on your own. Um, and like, I had a whole bunch of ideas for expansion. I wanted to add like a DMless version. It's pretty DMless right now. Like I have like the hack for it, but it was never official. Mm -hmm. um, and like to, like this was supposed to be like the combat primer where it's like, it's the, I tried to capture the purest essence of D&D &D without, without the complications. Like how could you get the feel of D&D boiled down to a really simple, everything is in your hands mm -hmm. uh, kind of scenario. And like the idea was to gradually add on like a skill system and like items. And like, I think Munchkin, for instance, even though it's not necessarily a game for kids, I've had a lot of kids come up to me and tell me how much they love that system for gaming because like everything's on the cards. Like you have things that modify your character, but they're cards, right? Right. Um, and so I think this really tactile method is really effective. And like, even like things like uh, the way that Betrayal at House in the Hill does like hit points and everything. The way it has like your different attributes, like your speed and every and your um, knowledge and everything, and they they lower and that lowers your hit points to zero. Like it's all in your hand and it all kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that was my attempt to base it. And like I had been running games for kids for a while at uh, local game stores, and it was really my attempt to kind of come up with something that I could run without much wind up without much having to explain things beforehand because i feel like the other thing is that i feel like in games these days you play games to learn the game like in a game you never click through pages of information anymore like i remember old computer games you get this booklet and you'd read through this entire booklet before you'd play right mm -hmm. now they don't do that right there's all these like mini games in order to <laughs> learn the game and so like i loved the idea of like you know, you never have to read more than like a page and then you get a mini game that teaches you an aspect of the game like combat. And then eventually the mini games add up into a greater game. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, I guess, play to learn is another one of my primary things. And free, which was the other yes. great thing about it, that uh, if you were a parent and had some time to kill, uh, you could play this game with your kids. Uh, or if you were a kid and had some time to kill, you could get this off the internet and cut out the pieces and, and be ready to go. Well, I feel like so many of the people who would love the game don't necessarily have, or who would love playing D&D, &D, don't necessarily have the resources at the time to play it. I mean, whether because they're a kid and they don't really have much of an allowance, mm -hmm. or because their parents don't want them to let them buy it. Gaming should be for all people, right? And like maybe, I, my idea was that the fancy versions would be paid, right? You could get a fancy version with like a laminate <laughs> or whatever, but you could also get everything online for free. Um, because like you should still be allowed to play. You should still be able to play even if you don't have the support that it seems required to play. Games are really expensive to get into. If you think about D&D, &D, like the books were in the era of like 4.0 and uh, 3.5, like they were actually really expensive um, mm -hmm. to get into. Like a kid doesn't necessarily have $120 lying around 
Um, that's that was two video games at that time. Wizards has stopped supporting this game, and it seems like it would yes. be such a great thing for them to continue supporting. Uh, do, do you have any hopes for the future of like maybe they'll bring something like this back and uh, and get on board with bringing kids in again? And would you like to be part of it if they do? I'd love to be part of it if they decided to bring it back. I am. I kind of get the impression that it's never going to happen <laughs> uh, because I think that they're really focused on their core audience. Um, fourth edition, while many brought many people into the game, also alienated people. And so I think they're trying to unite the two factions because like you don't want to, with fifth edition, they have to be so careful not to alienate the people they brought in with four while trying to reinterest the people who they alienated with four. <laughs> so like, I think they're still concentrating on that. And the other thing is that um, it's something like if it's, and this is just, this is a pet theory, and I think this happens everywhere, but it's not their game. I mean, no one who worked on it is there, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and if it's not your thing, it's harder to be passionate and invested in it. So I actually think that, you know, maybe sometime they would end up doing it again, but I think they'd do their own version. It's hard to pick up someone else's toys, especially if the toys, like my toys weren't very developed, right? It's just the one thing. So well, you had big plans. I can tell that oh, I there did. were big plans there. <laughs> Well, like, I have strong opinions about gaming in general and, like, the way in which a good game should be mm -hmm. made. And, like, I mean, there's a couple things. And, like, I should probably do more research. But, like, in my <laughs> experience, some of the things I've noticed are that, like, making monsters reactive. And I think, but I think all this extends to adults, too. Like, making monsters reactive and active in ways other than just doing damage. Like, I found that kids hate it when... They uh, take damage or miss a turn, but they love it if it pushes them, if it swallows them, if something's disgusting, <laughs> like, you know, if something splits when they hit it. I made a slime monster where every time you hit it, it splits until it goes into little ones. And I mean, that's a classic. Like, it's used everywhere. But they just loved it because it was reactive. And, and like, they're actually pretty violent. Um, but that can be – you want to have levels of the violence just for the adults because adults don't like to believe their kids are violent. Those philosophies in game design – are good not just for kids but for adults uh you know I having agree. interesting monsters that do more <laughs> than just damage or you know uh, no one likes to be stunned at the table no, no one likes it's to the worst <laughs> <laughs> and that what's so funny is that so many adults actually told me they played the game and loved it like with their friends with their adult friends uh, i have a girlfriend who does not uh play D D, and it actually seems like a great way to like hey, you know how you're always asking me what I do? This is kind of a, a great way for you to experience what I'm doing. Yeah, I think it's um, it can be. It depends on what their entry point into gaming is, like what they're most interested in, right? Because mm -hmm. you could also lead with a story-based game. I usually start with combat because I think it's the more, most complex. Mm -hmm. um, and people feel really uncomfortable if they don't understand it. Well, actually, it's the simplest and the most complex. It's the most complex in terms of rules. It's the simplest in terms of them players figuring out what they need to do. Um, so, like, for instance, in my current game, I had mostly new players. Um, I only had two experienced players in my current game. And one of the things I did is I made sure that the first session, it had plot, but there was combat, so they could figure out that session, how that worked. And then the next game, it was more about skills and puzzles and traps. And then the next game, it was mostly about social interaction. So, like, slowly... Because if I gave them too much at once, like they were very excited the first combat to figure out finally what dice they roll, how it works, the fact that they can like hide in combat even and things like that, like mm -hmm. all the different options. 
but with a different group, it might've been better to start with social interactions. Like I know a lot of people who are turned off by the crunchiness of combat. And even though I think combat's not very crunchy, once you get, once you get in the flow, once you kind of know the rules and don't have to think about them, but it is at first, like for people who've never gamed or never done like a video game, even like there's a lot to learn. There's a lot for people to take in as they are playing these games. And if you can do it in stages, like you said, the same way a lot of modern video games give people their own training for the game in mini games, that's a great mm -hmm. way to do it. I never really thought about doing that before, but it's kind of genius. So uh, <laughs> I'm stealing it. Thank you. Thanks. Well, and another reason combat's easy to start with is the fact that like, you have to come up with a reason the players are together and it feels more organic if the reason happens in game. Um, so like in this time I had someone steal all their stuff. It was a bank robbery, right? Yeah. They want their stuff back. It unites them immediately. <laughs> That's one thing you can count on. Players are greedy, all of them. So <laughs> I know that you run a game that uh, Aaron Evans is actually a player in the game that you run. Yes. Um, yes. Are you running fifth edition D&D? Uh, yeah, it's modified fifth edition. Um, we started with the play test, but yes. yeah, it's mostly fifth. I do homebrew. Cool, cool. So talk to me a little bit about your world and your game. So I guess the simplest way um, for the world is that I wanted to make sure that uh, I really like games that have kind of a sense of history mm -hmm. and where you can have plot lines that engage all of the players' backstories. I came up with kind of broad strokes of like things that I just find engaging. Uh, one thing I find engaging is Undead. I love Undead. I think they're <laughs> awesome. I will never not like them. They, I have an unhealthy appreciation. Couldn't agree so. more. Couldn't agree more. I love them. My <laughs> players actually, I've been gaming with the same group for, for many years, and they were like, Could you, we need to cool it with the undead. We'd like <laughs> to fight. There's a whole monster manual. We'd like to fight something else. <laughs> but there's so many monster manuals that are so good devoted to the undead, I and they're know. so creepy. Skin kites. Oh, my God. Give me a skin kite. They're amazing. <laughs> oh, so gross and so awesome. <laughs> yeah. This, the undead ones, I feel like, I feel like the designers really enjoyed making them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. You can tell. Yes. <laughs> um, so one of the plot lines is that, uh, and, and I, oh, I, I kind of borrowed from Eberron a little bit in terms of having infernals and divines instead of gods. Mm -hmm. And so it's basically, um, I have these powerful spirits that you would, um, you can pray to for things, but you'd also pray for not things. Like you'd pray to like the person who like deals with natural disasters to like, please no natural disasters. Mm -hmm. Right. But you could also pray for them for a natural disaster on someone else's house. And so bas basically one of the, with uniting those kind of things, what I had is that, uh, oh, and there are three worlds. There's the spirit world, there's the mortal world, and there's the underworld. And these are all literal worlds, um, but they all kind of exist. The spirit world exists um, in a different plane. Like, mm -hmm overlaying your own uh and the underworld is literally under the ground and so one of the gotcha. things that happens is that the underworld opens up and the undead start like the dead start coming back so like your grandma and everything start coming back cool. um and this happens about a hundred years ago in the past and so um the goddess of life and death and balance uh or the divine of life uh infernal of life death and balance um imbues uh some warriors um in order to kind of fight this, in order to drive it back. And they basically are able to use it. They bind their soul into this weapon and they're able to use their soul um, in order to power it, in order to, they give a little bit to the monster and the undead and it kind of puts them back to rest. So the idea is that these monsters are um, up because they, uh, 
they're missing their soul and giving them a little bit back can put them back to rest. That's and so, really cool. <laughs> and so one of the things that happens though is that with each use, it basically it fra- they keep um, fracturing their soul, and then like when they uh, they can't die either because when they die, they get brought back, and that mm. again fractures their soul. So they're slowly going crazy. Um, and eventually all of a sudden they start disappearing one by one. And then this one emerges who's calling herself the pale empress. And, uh, she has like all the swords of the others driven through her body. And she's like leading the undead against the humans. She basically just went freaking nuts, but no one really knows what her goal was. And so the empire had to kind of like buck up quickly and figure things out. And so another plot line I have is that there's, so I love Skyrim. I love (laughs) all of the like Elder Scrolls games. And one of the things I love so much about them is they killed off the dwarves and made them ancient and weird. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) Um, Like I think it just adds this level when you know that there are civilizations that have passed before. Mm -hmm. Right. And like Martin does the same thing. George R. R. Martin. Oh yeah. In his books and like the Lord of the Rings, like it's just, it's a constant theme that I find really powerful. So I basically made the Deva, um, an ancient extinct civilization that was really good with soul forging, which is a particular kind of magic that basically it's the same kind where you put the mad, your soul in the weapon. Um, but it can also be used to power things like battery. Basically it can work like a battery. So you can use it to power lights or magic or anything. And so, but no one in the modern day really knows how to do it. Um, so they've, there are archaeologists who go to these ruins and try and recover bits and figure it out. And so this new group called the Soul Forge had discovered this new cache. Um, and they uh, figured out how to make these basically force walls that keep out undead. Basically, undead can't cross them. Or rather, they, can't, they can put their hand against it and it will drain their life. Oh, okay. um, at the same time, like, so it basically does damage them, but that also drains the power from these, um, physical force walls. Cause it's basically oh, these gotcha. staves d- driven in the ground with like gems in them that, and runes and everything that, um, power it. And the gems need to be recharged all the time because the undead will event like a bug thing. Right. 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 Yeah. They'll eventually, uh, uh wear it down as it were. Right. Cool. Right. And at, and at first there were problems, like, so basically they were able to put these around, like, the places the undead were coming out to help. Um, but what ended up happening is the Pale Empress just disappeared one day for no apparent reason 50 years ago. And the armies the, of undead, basically, there's only a few undead that come up now. And they have no idea why. They didn't win. It just kind of stopped suddenly. Um, and then just recently in the game, the undead have started coming back and the Pale Empress has started being seen again. And one of the players woke up with one of the swords of the pale circle on her chest. And so another plotline I have going is the Empire versus kind of the monstrous races led by the dragons. And so my continent, I have some mountains in the middle with a narrow pass through them. And I'm basically using kind of an ancient Persian style empire. Okay. Um, where in that, like... It's and it's recently conquered. It's second generation, first generation. Uh, there was a woman who kind of got like a message from the same god that imbued the um, people with these powers to fight the undead. That basically told her this war is coming. You need to unite people. Nice. So she took takes over the continent, and she's a total. She's kind of a Joan of Arc badass, and she starts with fighting the war against the. Um, pale empress but basically she when she dies shortly after her son takes over and shortly after 
the pale empress just kind of disappears. And the son, of course, is like, oh my God, I have like the most badass mom ever. <laughs> By my age, she'd already like taken over the continent. What in the world can I do to like, so he's kind of like a bone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because like, how awful would that be? Like, I remember hearing that Caesar was crying uh, at one point because he was comparing himself to Alexander the Great and he hadn't <laughs> conquered as many countries as Alexander the Great had <laughs> at that age. Like, I feel like when you're in those shoes, emperor shoes, right? You compare yourself to emperors. But he also needs something to get them focused on because they're recently conquered with a, when, uh, he's, when he rose to power. Like, that's the most likely time for them to rebel. Um, so they just, and the people do start needing more space. The empire is primarily human. Um, so they end up making a deal with the dwarves who live in the mountain range. Um, and so the, the dwarves are kind of, don't really have issues with anyone because no one else wants the, that land because um, it's too mountainous. Um, but they make a deal with them to make a pass through the mountains to the monstrous land uh, in order to be able to expand their territory. Um, and so they start work on this and the dragons are like, you know, WTF, you're in <laughs> like, this is not cool. This is our land. You can't just decide to take it over just because you want it. Uh, and so they start like attacking that. Um, and just, just the fortification, the bridge work, right. And the tunnel work and the, um, the empire, like is, he's obviously pissed about this, but it's not enough for the empire to get behind attacking them like full out. He instigates gates by having people his people insult them enough that they come and drag in everything <laughs> right yeah <laughs> um and so then they move the capital luckily obviously he and his whole all his like the nobles were safe because they knew ahead of time what was going to happen well enough the right nobles right uh, and then they're like they declare war and so unfortunately they're still losing because this was such a stupid idea because there's these mountains in between and you know dragons fly and have fire And the dragons end up like turning most of one of the provinces into like you know this ashen land. Um, But what they do, two things happen that help give them the edge. One thing is that they decide they basically the gnomes are being neutral in this. They have a small kingdom that's in the forest along there, uh, and the empire is like you know, we need to raise your forest to get to the pass so we can get an army through to the other side. And the gnomes are like, haha, no, this is our home. <laughs> so the empire takes them over, raises their land and basically like carts them all off and starts sending armies through that way. And then the other thing is that the Soulforge discovers basically Warforged mm-hmm. and they start making Warforged dragons. Whoa, um, and they only make a few of them. Wait, yeah. what? <laughs> <laughs> they only make a few of them, but they use these to kind of help combat the dragons. And the dragons are even more pissed off because this is like the worst, right? It's like an abomination. Yeah, yeah, that's messed up. Everyone knows they're powered by some kind of dark magic because soul magic is super dark and like mm-hmm. not, It's. I mean, it's akin to necromancy, right? Right, yeah, you're using um, but, souls to make a giant dragon. Right, and so like how many go into that? right and like (laughs) and so like you know but it does bring them to more even odds and so they end up coming up with a truce that happens about seven years ago so basically i then had like you know i made sure that like the thieves guild and figured out how they worked and they're kind of mob like you know sicilian mob like and then i came up with like uh this group of like vigilant people who like helped uh who still guard the um places that the undead come up to make sure that the force walls stay charged. Um, and like, you know, the people at the dragon core that used to work with the dragons. Oh, but one of the deals they made with the dragons is that they had to dismantle all the 
um, were forged. War forged um, so technically they did, but it's kind of a Cold War situation and that the dragons don't really believe that they did, mm-hmm. but they can't prove otherwise. Gotcha. Uh, another thing the Empire did is that they used my dragonborn are actually um, the result of chemical warfare, all chemical warfare, um, because they, the Empire was basically poisoning the eggs of the dragons with alchemical ingredients oh. and creating these things. So they were often abandoned by their parents. Um, I ended so up adding another... When are th- you publishing this? Because <laughs> I would like very much to play in this world. I would like Thank very you. much to play in this world. I think It's really fun. It's not, I, it's not currently... I had no plans to publish it, but uh, I've got like 100,000 words written in it. <laughs> like nuts. That's a book. Oh, and I made Tieflings Cursed. So basically, it's a curse that you can... It can travel down your line, but you can also get the curse if, for instance, you need a new identity in a hurry. Oh, that's so cool. That's uh, <laughs> That adds a really great layer to Tieflings, too. And you can take it off. Like, you could get the curse removed, technically. It's a high-level curse, but, you know, and who knows what you actually are underneath if, uh, if you were born Tiefling. Uh, how long have you been running this game? Uh, about a year and a half now. Um, it'll be two years in November. Nice, nice. And how, what level is your party right now? They're about fifth level. Okay. So it runs, actually, one of the things, um, this game, I found that 5th edition runs really slow in terms of experience gain. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't, we do try, we play once or twice a month, depending on how busy the month is. So okay. we're, def- we're playing two times this month. We just played last week, and we'll be playing next week. Is there any other uh, tabletop games, board games, role-playing games that, uh, that you have also been playing? Um, well, as a player, I recently got the chance to play in um, a two shot of the strange and a two shot of the cypher system in a horror game. Great games. Uh, yeah. Run by um, Bruce Cordell for the strange Whoa. and Monty Cook for the horror game. <laughs> oh yeah. I bet that awesome. sucked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> those were really cool. And I'm actually going to try and figure out a way. There are two things that I really like about the game that I found myself when I was running fifth edition that I wished it had. And so I'm probably going to try and incorporate them. Um, and one of them is the experience system. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that um, if there's a DM intrusion where like the DM makes things more difficult for you, uh, you get two experience cards or two experience points and you can give one, you're supposed, you keep one, but you have to give one away to someone that you think and tell them like why they get it, like from something they did that impressed you or something. Um, and like, I realized in this latest game that I was running, like people were arguing for one of the characters to get, more experienced than the others because she was like amazingly awesome in her role playing <laughs> that night. And I'm like, you know, it would be so cool if there was some kind of system to reward that. Uh, and the other thing the experience points can be used in that system for is um, you can use them uh, kind of like a luck roll, right? Where you can get a reroll if you're lucky in sure. uh, D&D. Oh, yeah. And I use that as kind of a side system for uh, like I, I invent a lot of random one use magic items just to spice things up in my game. And like that's always been a popular one, uh, something that basically gives you a reroll on a p- very particular thing. Um, so I think that that would actually be kind of interesting that it could bump you up to the next level if you hoard them, or it could give you, give, you could give yourself or someone else a reroll on something with them. And you wouldn't get them all the time. Like you would just, it would be like in addition to normal experience. It would just be like 
you know, after the game, if someone, if you do something particularly mean to someone <laughs> or think they do something that like deserves an experience point for some reason. You sent out a great tweet about a month ago that said the secret thrill when you begin to suspect that someone you know from circles entirely unrelated to gaming plays D&D. <laughs> um, and, and I just thought that was so great because uh, that perfectly encapsulates a feeling you get when you meet someone who you're like, oh, I might be able to talk to this person about D&D on a level aside from having to explain what it is and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, have a deeper conversation about this hobby that I love. And you still get that feeling, which makes me feel like you are a person who worked for Wizards of the Coast, who's very public about your love for Dungeons and Dragons and everything. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's, it's so great that you are still able to experience this. Well, thank you. I, um, yeah, it's one of my favorite things. And like, I know a lot of people, like, I am very public about it. And like, you know, I, I don't make bones about it when I meet new people or anything, because I just feel like if you're happy and confident in your hobby, other people will treat it that way, too. It's only like, I've never had problems as long as I'm outgoing about it. Um, but one of the things that my favorite things is that feeling. And I love that slow flirtation of like, <laughs> like, of like slowly like edging words in or topics and like seeing it slowly build like it's really fun um it's one of my one of the reasons my favorite gaming shirts are always super subtle like they have a symbol that's from the game Mm -hmm. and so like the only people who will recognize it and talk to you about it are people who recognize it right and everybody Um, else just thinks oh that's a cool shirt Right. Like D&D as a logo is too well known. So everyone knows it. And would, but like I had this great shirt from the Elder Scrolls. Um, they don't make it anymore. And it makes me so sad. But it was the Nightingale logo from Skyrim. And that's all it had. on. Oh, and on the back, it had the whole like I'm sneaking logo, essentially. And it was great because like, <laughs> it's, so, it's such a like niche thing that like when people recognized it, like you had this immediate connection on like a deeper level than you would otherwise. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that, that's a great way to describe it as a flirtation, because I think it's, you know, you're there and then like you drop the gelatinous cube reference, you see if they get it, (laughs) you know, that kind of thing uh, is is really fun. Uh, We're going to have to wrap up soon. But before we go, let's talk a little bit about Gen Con. You are going to be at Gen Con and people are uh, planning their schedules, making their way for events right now. If they want to see you at Gen Con, where can they find you? So I am on a bunch of the Gen Con Writer Symposium programming. I'm moderating a ton of panels. So like I'm on Thursday, I'm on how to talk about your book, editing your work, and when to show, when to tell. Um, Friday, I'm on editors, roles and relationships, uh, what editors are looking for, advanced Kickstarter and mythology. Um, Saturday, I'm on sustaining the tension in novels and writing the other. Uh, and I think that's all the ones I'm scheduled for right now. That's awesome. Well, that's, I mean, that's three chances to go see uh, Susan J. Morris at Gen Con, people. So you should go check her out. Susan, uh, where uh, can people find you on the internet if they want to find you? SusanJMorris.com. Susan, thank you very much for joining me on Gamer to Gamer today. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. It was fun. You're welcome back anytime. People, if you have a question or comment about the show, you can reach out to me on Twitter at James Intricasso, or you can go to the Tome Show's website, thetomeshow.com. And a quick shameless plug for me, check out my blog, which is all about Exploration Age. It's the fifth edition world I'm building. It's over at worldbuilderblog.me. 
Okay, everyone, thanks for listening, and thanks to Susan for being on the show. Also, many thanks to Jeff Greiner and to Sam Dillon. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. Remember, never give up. Life is a game. Eventually, you gotta roll a 20. <laughs>